BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Hi everyone, this is Matt Ardell, the co-producer of the Comedy Album Book Club. Sorry if you were expecting the dulcet tones of Jason DeLine. He let me have a go at the mic today. Three weeks ago, we recorded our episode talking about Force Majeure by Eddie Izzard, and a couple of days later, I had the pleasure of sitting down with our guest Adam Bailey to talk about comedy, compassion, sex, and politics. Since that interview, a lot has happened in the world, including the world of comedy. One of the happier things to happen in the world of comedy is the addition of Adam's play The ABCs of Love with Adult Baby Cupid to the Toronto Fringe Festival, running from July 5th to July 15th, followed closely by the Hamilton Fringe Festival from July 19th to July 29th. So, if you're in the Hamilton or Toronto area, do yourself a favor and check out those shows. If you enjoy this podcast, please give us five stars and leave us a review. Sit back and enjoy our conversation with playwright Adam Bailey. Thanks for joining me. I'm sitting with Adam Bailey, a Fringe and Now Magazine award-winning director, playwright, actor, and comedian, as well as a heck of a cabaret performer and dancer. Um, You started two production companies, Royal Porcupine Productions, as well as Still Your Friend Productions, uh, directed works by... William Shakespeare, and plays like Terrorism, The Enchanted Crack House, in addition to writing your own works, like The Assassination of Robert Ford, Dirty Little Coward, Adam Bailey's on Fire, and The Life of Henry. Um, so yeah, it's been like over 10 years that we've known each other now. Um, it's kind of scary that that kind of sneaks up on you. Yeah. Uh, we met during working on the shameless stains uh, a company that i produced uh i didn't create though um and yeah it was uh it, that was a fun doing agitprop comedy uh with without our clothes on um and lots of boobies lots of women with their with their boobs showing and i, I mean at the time there were, there was sort of like the boom of burlesque in toronto but not many of them had a, like a, a, pol- a like a political manifesto like the dames did yeah, and I don't know if we if we purposely did that or that was just our sense of humor. We were all leftist enough that we all just like coalesced around around the same sort of ideas. And there was a very anti-Bush, and like we were all terrified of America becoming an empire at that moment in time. And and certainly how naive we were that <laughs> ten years later, it's really happening. 
Oh, or it's just, it, it's crumbling now. It could be in its decadent phase. That's true. Yeah. I mean, if I had to think of a Roman emperor, Nero, uh, that would be a, a good fit for, for Trump. What, what instrument will he play when it burns? I don't want to say that on a family podcast. So. I didn't know this was a family podcast. Uh, I'll keep all the swearing to myself. <laughs> oh, no, it's okay. So, we want we like to ask um, what your favorite comedy album was and how it shaped your work. Oh, wow. Um, my favorite comedy album. I mean, I grew up in an evangelical household, so we had all these Mike Warnke um, comedy albums who uh, who I actually was taken to. I think that might have been one of my first live comedy shows, too, was this. Um, for, for the evangelical set, like, he was our stand-up comedian okay. and he had a series of of hit albums within the christian um entertainment community and so so he he would probably be one of the more influential things because i was allowed to listen to him because i wasn't allowed to listen to a lot of other things growing up and so yeah. so definitely that put me on the 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 march towards being funny it was mike warnke i i didn't think i'd be saying his name today but yeah him (laughs) so i mean he obviously worked in sort of christian and and family friendly themes but like what kind of style was it like high energy observational like i i'm a big fan of like lewis black now and i can kind of draw a direct line between like mike warren key and and him where he'd be like patter 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 and then like an outburst of like raw emotion and like high energy so it's it's sort of like you know if, if you if you take um if you take uh, George Carlin, and then you fork off one direction becoming ultra Christian, the other direction <laughs> becoming like ultra fuck the establishment. That that would sort of be Louis Black and the fuck the establishment. And and Mike and Mike Warnke, this very niche comedian who who did that sort of thing. Like he had long hair, and he had this entire set about how you know Christians would come up to him and say, "You can't have long hair; it's an effeminate hairstyle," and the Bible's against that. And of course, his long hair was like scraggly middle-aged douche guy long hair he'd be like this is a a feminine hairstyle and he would like really get like off like what sort of woman looks like this and he was like kind of like a fat hairy guy so like with a beard so it kind of made sense like those sorts of observational things um even the most oppressive religious folks need to laugh every once in a while it's true it's true (laughs) but i mean thinking about it you know the observational element has played a lot in your your place like in your humor like not necessarily to the point of strictly calling it out but there's i, I just when i think about your plays i think a lot of the times it's very astute sort of character studies and and honing in on these details about the people and the places involved in them where you really draw out these facts and pull out the absurdities of situations and people well i mean i think in some ways, another person that I, I compare myself to... Oh, my goodness. I'm going to compare myself to the top. Um, <laughs> Steve Martin. Uh, because I think when you talk about the stuff that I write that is, that is more theatrical, even though it is also comedy, um, that takes me forever to write. Like, my writing process is, is very detailed-oriented, and I really focus on things. But I also have my MC persona when I'm cabareting or when I'm doing comedy nights, where I'm often just riffing off of what's happening in the room and around me. Like, if I'm hosting as an MC, I might have, uh, I'll start off with a strong five minutes to like get the evening going, but between the acts, I'll start showing threads between the different comedians and stuff. And I feel like that zany V brainy. Yeah. 
Zany meets Brainy. That's me. And Steve Martin. I- I'm your lost child, Steve Martin. Give me a call. <laughs> <laughs> now, you know, like, speaking of that, you've done a lot of different, like, genres and, and, and types of plays. So you've done, like, one-man shows. You've done shows with, like, full casts. And you've, you know, you've written alone and in, in groups. So how's the process, like, writing comedy and writing theater alone versus writing comedy or theater uh, in general with a, with a group, with like a writing room kind of situation? Oh, wow. It, it all depends on deadlines. I mean, like, when I was working with the Shameless Dames, we had to turn our shows around um, in eight weeks, right? Like, mm-hmm. and, and those were full burlesque musicals. Like, we had song and dance numbers to learn and rehearse, and we had people with their own uh, burlesque solos, and we had scripted uh, sketch comedy bits. And so that would happen really fast because we were driving towards a goal that just sort of like SNL. Uh, it didn't matter. You didn't put the show on because it was ready. You put the show on because your dates came up, right? Like, yeah. And you just had to be ready whenever that was. Um, mm-hmm. Meanwhile, I'm writing um, something for Adult Baby Cupid uh, right now. I'm not writing it. It's done, it's done written, being written now. And I wrote that uh, with a partner. Mm-hmm. And that was as long as anything else I've written on my own just yeah. because we wanted to get it right. Like, there was a real drive to make sure that what we put on stage, because we were dealing with really hot topics, uh, was being done in a way that was smart and funny. So, speaking of adult baby Cupid, you just, <laughs> did, a, <laughs> you just did a read of your latest play, The ABCs of Love with Adult Baby Cupid. Yes, The ABCs of Love with uh, Adult Baby Cupid. <laughs> uh, at, at the Toronto Festival of Clowns. Yep. Um... So now, I mean, we talked about this before. You had a play done. You had something done, and then Me Too happened, and it meant you had to totally retool that. So, can you tell me maybe a bit, like, about Adult Baby Cupid, how Me Too reshaped that, and do you think it's a more interesting play because of it? It's a ten times better play because of it. Uh, we have something with real thought in it and, and like people are going to be unpacking what's in it for for hopefully weeks after they see the show at the same time it's goofy dumb humor like it's it's like some of the humor is like is is, is bonkers and, and stupid and just like adult baby cupid is a character i created for the lunacy cabaret as a hosting conceit for like they had shows that were falling on valentine's weekend and they just wanted an appropriate host for that so i did this man in a diaper uh, who, who spoke in a baby voice hello <laughs> i'm cupid i'm a little baby and he would talk like that and he um gives love advice except his love advice is is outdated and wrong and um the abcs of love we were going into it with with these are the questions that people are asking about love right now and even we we're writing it even as harvey weinstein happened and that and that was fine that wasn't affecting us what changed it was Inzi and Zari. Because that bad date changed all the questions that people were asking about what's appropriate in relationships now. And the same way, like, season two of Kimmy Schmidt feels like it was written for uh, a world that never existed. Yeah. Um, the script that we had was fine. It was funny. But it just felt like it was humor for a parallel universe. And so... Didn't realize we are going to go into the darkest of timelines. Yeah. So so, so we are doing a, an advice column show about um, a struggling artist um, who's hired by the god of love, adult baby Cupid. And, and in the world of the play, it is something that we've been touring across Canada. 
and have been protested in every single city we go to by a different group. So it's like it's it's just about how there is no right answer to anything at this moment yeah. that you will always set off an extremist. Yeah. And the entire show just really sits in this really uncomfortable place because Cupid tends to put you in really uncomfortable um, uncomfortable places. Were you at the show where I did the condom gag with him? No, no. Yeah, like this the sort of character that he is is the sort of character he came out because he hates birth control because he wants you to have babies. That's the whole purpose of falling in love. Uh, and so he would he came out after he discovered a used condom in the theater washroom, very upset about it. And and in true clown form, the minute someone laughed at him, I fixated on that person. And, and Cupid would go up to the person and start shoving the used condom in their oh, face. No. And the second that person's buddy <clears throat> laughed at him for that, it was like, oh this is your condom then and it shoved it in their face until I like went all the way down a row and ended up dropping it in someone's drink and then chugging their beer on them on stage like, <laughs> oh, no. it, Cupid Cupid can do really big and wild things it's, yeah. it's a very big and wild character so now um, you know AB, your play ABC's Love with Adult Baby Cupid was reshaped by me too now how do you think the obviously with CK and you know other performers like Aziz Ansari, you know how Me Too is affecting them. But how do you think it's affecting the dynamic of actually telling a joke and how, the comedy that's coming out? Because you look at people like um, Michelle Wolf or or you know a lot. There's a lot more attention being paid, I think, to creators who are calling out these inequities in a much more Rash. Do you think that's something that was happening anyways, or do you think Me Too maybe is it helped accelerate that? Well, I mean, I think it's definitely the voice of the moment is not the white male voice. Uh, it's that very interesting that I that I am having this play at this moment. Uh, but I think it's helping people like Michelle Wolf and Samantha Bee and Aisha Brown and people getting their name out there and being the voice of the moment because that that's the voices that a lot of people want to hear. At the same time, it is dividing the market a bit. Uh, there are shows like White Guys Matter happening at Yuck Yucks, and, and, and people are being infuriated by the existence of that show, and what does that mean? But there are people who are still craving to see themselves rep. There are white people who want to see themselves represented in comedy, and they just they feel like they're not getting a chance right now. The, like ninety nine percent of the market that we dominate. I've got ninety nine problems, but that one percent of time I'm not represented ain't one. Uh, <laughs> it, it's. I think I think because the subject matter is so driven to one side, like the the the, the need. The voice we need to hear is so female and and not white, mm-hmm. and I think it's really helping those comedians have a moment right now. That in, in an odd way. Now you did debut this play at the Toronto Festival of Clowns. Woo-hoo. So uh, can you tell me a bit about that? It's the thirteenth year that uh, the festival has gone on. Um, what are some of the favorite acts that you saw during that? What What's the festival itself about? Okay, so the Festival of Clowns um, in Toronto is a uh, festival of comedy, of physical comedy, of no fourth wall theater um, bits. Uh, it's it's designed to help bridge people doing physical comedy turns, whether it's red nose or like other styles of clowning, Buffon, like Mr. Beanie type stuff, uh, and help them develop their stuff so they can get to an hour long show. Because there's not a lot of space that's focused strictly on people creating those sorts of works. 
Now, in the festival this year, we had some really interesting bits. We had um, Candace Bernhardt doing Get Lucky, which I believe she's touring across the country. Um, we had Travis Bernhardt. I think I gave Candy his last name for some reason. Um, they're married now. <laughs> Travis and Candy, you're married. Um, and he did a show called Unscriptured, which is uh, a show where he improvs a church with the entire audience, which is one I saw it last year in the Edmonton Fringe, and it's it's mind blowingly good. Uh, we always do triple bills, and we had lots of cabarets. This is our first year doing a clown burlesque cabaret because there's an entire community of um, the clown fear has gone away. There's now instead the people with the clown phobia are giving way to people with who are, have like a clownophilia. Like there, there, there's a, there's a real kink thing happening with clowns right now, which is really interesting to watch. I mean, there's lots of good stuff out there for people who are interested in that. Uh, I know. The Fringe in Toronto is coming up, and the Merkin Sisters is an act that's touring that I love that does a lot of really wild, physical, Jim Henson-esque clown comedy with their bodies, and they do full-body puppetry. Mm-hmm. Um, we have Moro and Jasp, who are in the festival, and they also have a show coming up in the Fringe um, called Save the Date. So, yeah, there's lots of amazing things and that are out there in the physical comedy world. It's just giving them a space to develop is what, is what the... TFOC is about. Now you mentioned there's different styles of comedy like Buffon. Um, now looking at acts like Stephen Colbert or Zach Galifianakis who like literally has a show about being a clown uh, but even outside of Buckets is watching their work it's there. there is that physical element there is that sort of character development that seems common with like Mr. Bean or these other extreme clowny characters. So how do you feel that you know Comedy is a snob, like is a snobby world. So no, uh, people people say that and they make it happen. Uh, but I've been welcome as someone who crosses over uh, from theater to comedy to clown, who's who's done cabarets. I've never run a room or been in a room where I've been made to feel so much like an oddball. I know other people experience that, and it sucks. Uh, but but you have to push through. You, 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 and, and if you do, if you're confident in, hey, I'm doing this mixed bag of things, and if you own it, I, I think the snobbery goes away. And, like, do you feel uh, clowning informs stand-up, or it, there's, like, a, a feedback loop there to a certain extent? Cl- clowning and stand-up. I mean, I think if you go to a Just for Laughs type festival, there are people who definitely have done clown work at that. I know Just for Laughs bills itself as a comedy capital C comedy festival, but it tends to be a stand-up festival, yeah. mostly. Uh, I think anytime you get the musical acts, there's a bit of clown there's a bit of clown that, that influences how the people who do musical comedy work. Large scale improv, Steve Martin is definitely a clown. He he does a lot of clowning in his work. Uh, you can almost say like the magician in him. Like a magician and clown and all that sort of draw from the same source of engaging the audience in a different way that well, and, and drag. Any, any drag queen who does comedy, not pageant, is a clown. Because that's using the mask um, to create a character and then interacting with the audience in, in an honest, in the moment, like right now kind of way. Yeah. Um, so I, th- I think, you know, it, Bob the Drag Queen is certainly a clown. Like, uh, Miss Cracker, probably a clown. So I think those people are clowns. It's just the people who make their, mo- their money in comedy who have clown training, sometimes are sneaky about how they label themselves because they know that there's like 
this horror clown thing out there that they don't want to be associated with. And so even if their entire routine is based off a clown they developed, uh, they might not use that term when they're selling themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, when people think clown, they think Ringling Brothers. They don't think all these different, this history of of the, the art form being used in all these different ways. Well, and if this if this podcast gets heard on the West Coast, I'm going to say that there's going to be some people on the West Coast who will say no, because right now there's a real movement on the West Coast with physical comedy and clown clowning that's creating like really full shows that are quite hysterical. Um, there's one company called A Little Bit Off uh, that does new shows every year, and they're fantastic. Uh, they do a lot of play in their work, and then they drive people to the theater. Um, there's another show that I saw last year called You Fucking Earned It. Um, which is all about American excess and it's dark and funny at the same time. I, I left the theater and said, my favorite part of that show was the rape, um, which is not something you normally say when you see yeah. a show, but, but it, they, they summarily sold out houses with one star reviews and won um, an artist appreciation award at wow. the festival that I saw them in. Like, so there, there's, there's, I think it depends on where you are. Yeah. What well, that is. It's like, you know, there's a New York comedy mm. scene and an L.A. comedy scene. They're, di- they're very different. And you when you hear an L.A. comic, there's an L.A. comic voice. When you hear a New York comic, there's a New York comic voice. And then you have the people who sort of go back and forth. Now, if they start mixing with the hip-hop scene, so, like, you have your West Coast comics and your West Coast uh, rappers, like, uh, like running in posses together now, because that, that would be... That would be interesting. I want to I see that happen. <laughs> America, you you fuck the world over with your presidential choice. Um, start blending your comedy and and, and your rappers together. I, I think that is what the world needs now. Yeah, that's a good. One. Now um, we recently did an episode um, where you were on the panel where we discussed Izzy, Eddie Izzard's album Force Majeure. Hope I got that right, Jason. Uh, Force I think it's Majeure. Eddie Ozarks. Okay. Is <laughs> uh, Gizzards. 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 Yeah. Um, but, you know, he's a transvestite comedian. He, and he's made his transvestitism a part of his act for decades, uh, but in a very matter-of-fact way. Like, he'll mention it, especially in the early, st- early episodes, uh, where he discusses, like, his action transvestite persona, um, or business transvestite. Uh, but do you think... Because in a lot of ways, other than that, he's kind of str- like he's very he's, he's straight. He's his humor plays straight. Like, so do you yeah. think in some ways that opened the doors or for for other LGBTQ plus acts, or do you think it it sort of held it back, or like how how do you think his work informed queer uh, comedy? Mean- a door is a door. I, I, I think I think him going through the door makes the door a bit wider. It expands the idea of what of what it is. I mean, we we might have too many letters in in our acronym now in the two S L G B T Q world. Uh, but I think it's good that that uh, a person who identified publicly that way did that. Now, it's it, right now in comedy. It feels like it's more inclusive than it has ever been because i mean we have acts like james adomian ria butcher uh cameron esposito todd glass tignataro canadian local comedians like rick mercer and deanne smith who are all queer identifying um sharing their unique experiences so do you think now is a like 
do you think we're, like, the comedy world is finally being more embracing of different voices than it has previously? I, I think the fight um, is, is being won by women and people of color right now. I, I think for queer comedy... I think one of the reasons why I, I have to blend into so many scenes is I, I it's it's a different battle because um, you're kind of on the face of it being contrary and you have to explain yourself and where you are you can't just be a transvestite you have to explain that you're the action transvestite yeah. and and so and so you, you it takes a bit a little bit longer to to work into that and part of comedy is vulnerability and, and it's kind of a magic trick when you see like this cool straight guy who who should be cool when when they're suddenly dropping their guard and being vulnerable and letting you in on their innermost thoughts there there's a magic trick to that there's there's a get and when someone who's already awkward like you if someone who's already a bit of an outsider starts sharing their comedy it's a bit different like i think michael che um you know um his straight machismo helps his comedy yeah. In, in in a certain way, and I love his work. But like he is like good for you, um, being the head writer on SNL. Like you, you earned it. Uh, but but there's there's part of that success is is this kind of you know being like a, the, the the dude, yeah. And then and then letting the wall down. And I see that when I tour with other with other funny people. Um, when I go on the road and I'm on a festival circuit. The, the straight guys have this certain advantage, especially if they are, you know, the handsome, charming straight guys. Because if their act, and almost always their act, is about how they're a nerd like you, too. Well, it's like Chris Hardwick. I mean, I love Chris Hardwick. And I do not for a second doubt his nerd cred. The dude grew up living with Wesley Crusher as a roommate in college and then before that was like a nerd in chess club what oh yeah they, they went, what uh, yeah, how they, am i just learning this right yeah, now yeah, that's why they're so they're such tight buddies they they were roommates when wesley or when no, when he was on uh next generation and uh and and i guess chris hardwick was jaw floor <laughs> yeah so it's like i think he was doing one of the mtv dating shows that he did back in the day and he's still drinking like a fish uh, but he he was clearly a nerd the dude played fucking Dungeons and Dragons with Patton Oswalt and, and you know that entire Patton Oswalt I love him oh it's the same here and it's like so I mean but now it's like he got his shit together and it's like it's not it's it, it's still genuine it's who he is but it's like this is a guy who's like pushing like mid 40s late 40s looks the best he's looked in his entire life married like the granddaughter of the guy that citizen kane was based on you know like he's he's got a pretty decent life drives around in his jaguar and it's like hearing him talk about his his life struggles as a nerd just feels disingenuous no matter how much of an honest place it comes from and like I, I don't begrudge him his success. But then when you see Camille Nanjiani do basically the same kind of material in his own unique voice because of his different, different struggles, uh, like some that I saw Camille when he was in Toronto for just for laughs a couple of years ago. Some of the funniest comedy that I've ever seen because I it was completely relatable, and he does doesn't have that like machismo kind of element where it's like. You're, it, it feels more genuine if you, if you get my drift. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it depends. 
See, I don't think that's a snobbery between comedians. I think that's something that we have to contend with with the audience. Yeah. Uh, and if you ever have anything extra that you have to kind of explain, in some ways it's great to have a unique voice, and at other times you really have to take that extra step to explain yourself. Yeah. Um, when I did On Fire, the show that I toured across Canada for like two years, um, I start the show off by giving the audience communion. Uh, because they know they're going to go see this gay comedian do a show about like growing up religious but I really needed them to know that the thing that was other for them was the religion I grew up in and how that religion was affected because it was the Welsh's grape juice and torn up loaf of bread community and it wasn't the wafer it wasn't I, I wanted people to know that that was the specific thing uh, and then we never really got into like like me being gay was just on the face of it and like you all know a gay person now so like I knew that the audience coming to see that show all knew what being gay was. I didn't have to explain gay life to them. But I did need to explain religion to them. Yeah. And so it's, it's how you... How, how you take the time to set that up and what you do. And by making it in my show, by making it interactive, it, it really worked. The audience wasn't um, frightened yeah. by it. And when I, was, when I was selling that show, I would have people get like, well, are you trying to convert people or are you making fun of people who are religious? Because neither of those are cool. And I'm like, well, I, I know that. I'm, I'm not going to do either of those things. Like, well, then how are you doing a show? I literally asked, I had someone be like, you can't do a show about this. And that, that seems to be an interesting thing in comedy right now where it's like nobody can talk about things to just talk about them. It's you, you're either for or against. It, it's like, you know, I mean, Carlin grew up in a very religious Catholic upbringing and you know he, he talks about it and he's you know, pretty anti-religious in a lot of ways but he never he communicates it in such a way that you never go oh he hates the church kind of thing he communicates in a way that's like pulling out just the nature of, of that being what it is well and, and that kind of goes back to the ABCs of love where we're at this place where, where you can't talk about anything without it signaling that you're on one side or another. Yeah. Um, even something as simple as giving someone love advice, you know, the most generic thing that you can do because everyone has an opinion about, about how you should date. Uh, even that is, is very political right now. And we, we make fun of it as much as we embrace the seriousness of it. In fact, if we didn't do that, it wouldn't be a funny show. Uh, and the be and the best comedy is like that. Everyone, so much advice is for people to be careful around their comedy right now. There's there's so much advice about which direction you're punching in, and there's so there's so much advice about who should say what joke. But if you don't really go out there and embrace what you're doing, you're not going to make an impact. I think about like um, Neil Brennan's um, special uh, three mics or three yeah. microphones. Like, what an amazing show. Like, just, wow. Like, five stars. Out of the out of the ballpark. Amazing. And what is this show about? It's about how the issues he had with his father not only had never been resolved, but now have zero chance of ever being resolved. And about his lifelong struggle with anxiety and depression. And, and and that's not easy stuff to make jokes about, but he owns it. Unless you own it, you're not going to do anything good. So, and it's like those dark places are often the best places to plumb for that that laugh because it's cathartic. 
cathartic. You know, you're 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 pulling out these say like these. Everybody has darkness in their life. You're pulling out these pieces of darkness that we can all sort of resonate and identify with, and then going, but isn't this fucking ridiculous? And it is, and and, and that and that's the real stuff. That's the stuff. Ha ha ha! It's funny because it's true. No one says that anymore, except for Homer Simpson in reruns. But like, <laughs> it, it's. If you don't have truth, you don't have comedy. And the funny thing is, being someone who works with clowns a lot, that is the essential part of clowning, is, is how you deal with truth in the moment. You can't lie. If, the minute you start lying, you're not clowning properly. Um, and I think comedians um, who might see that as a separate training, who might see that as a separate genre, uh, the stand-ups, you know, you're, you got to be true as well. Like Very few punchline comedians have glorious careers that we all envy maybe they get to write punch-up scripts um for people but are you excited about anthony jesselnack doing anything not really no (laughs) (laughs) i don't don't resent him or doing anything but you know it's it's true i mean for me my personal taste is towards the confessional style comedy like the stuff where it's exploring that's the exploring one's life like Patton Oswalt's most recent special, or Maria Bamford's last two, two specials, like the, where you're dealing with loss or grief or mental health issues in in ways that are, you know, like just utterly frank, and and I think that's it. It's conversations that we need to have, and everybody's afraid, and they're they're, you know, not to belittle people's feelings, you know. I think it is important to be aware of where the joke is going to land but that should never make somebody afraid to make the joke if their intent is true you know if their intent is i'm trying to make fun of systemic inequalities because like me as a white dude i'm fucking lucky and isn't that ridiculous and you know and that's one of the things that kind of you know there's certain artists who did that really well whose work we can now no longer appreciate because of other horrible <laughs> things they did. But it's... Sure, it's... If you're being so coy about saying <laughs> Louis C.K. <laughs> and he, he wasn't technically white by American uh, no, census standards. He, 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 he was yeah, Mexican. Yeah. Which, which te- you can be white and Mexican, which is crazy. But, yeah. but according to American, um, like how they consider race in the States, that makes him a person of color because he is from Mexico. Uh, where in Mexico, I think they don't even actually race. They don't qualify it. Yeah, there is no... I I think there's some understanding of indigenous race, but Mexico is so blended with the the indigenous... Like, the indigenous and the European populations had so many babies together that it's really hard to... Mexico's interesting, because there's a a very... There's a movement to sort of reclaim the culture by these native Mm. communities, but for the most part, you're right, they don't consider race, period. You know, and... But looking at Louis C.K., where he talks about this, like, you know, much of his early stuff is like, you know, well, he went through a rough period at the beginning, but his best stuff is like, you know, I'm a white dude. This is the best fucking time to be alive to be a white dude 10 years ago when he was making this joke. And I can go to any point before now in history and still be A1. You know, I, and he was calling that out in a way that on the surface seemed like you know self-congratulatory but the the subtext and this is what seems to get lost in comedy a lot nowadays is subtext and context period is this is freaking wrong 
you know, we shouldn't, yeah, and, and it seems like comedy in general, not just Louis C.K., but comedy in general, the context and subtext seem to be concepts that seem to be sliding to the side. Like, you know, Michelle Wolf at the White Horse, Correspond- White House Correspondence Dinner, you know, she makes a joke. I want to see her in White Horse now. White Horse, yeah, that would be interesting. I, I, now that you've said it, I'm yeah. like, I'm imagining what jokes she would tell in White Horse. Uh, I, yeah, fact, I've seen her live. She's, she's an amazing act. But at the White Horse, White House Correspondence Dinner, like, she makes fun of, like, eyeshadow, but the joke wasn't about eyeshadow. It was about, you know, it's about lies. And she makes another joke about being, like, a character in The Handmaid's Tale. And it wasn't about her looking dumpy like the ant in The Handmaid's Tale. It was about her being a gender traitor. You know? And it's, it's, you know, it's like, people, are like, look at the surface. I'm like, the actual joke is a thousand times more cutting and cruel than this ridiculous surface level that they're obsessed with and it seems like context and subtext so there's you have some responsibility for interpretation i i think like enough people have come to her defense enough people got the joke and also republicans love to create false equivalencies so it's really hard to take them well, genuinely like, about it samantha b and the c word and it's like oh for god's sakes I I mean Samantha B should know that you don't say the c word at work, and Samantha B was at work, right? Like this unless is you're, unless you're English. I mean, this is why people don't like artists is because part of being an artist is breaking the rules, and half the time we're the ones who are creating new rules. Like we were all like, don't say the n word unless you're in a Quentin Tarantino movie or Twelve Years a Slave. Like no one gets mad at the white actors who said the n word in Twelve Years a Slave because they were making this great point, but technically they still did it, and they got paid money to do it, which is really wrong on a weird level. And so that's one of the why society has a special disdain for artists is because we're always kind of breaking the rules and and it's 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 hair thin when that's okay or not okay it's really hard to know um and that's why if you really want to be an artist if you really want to be funny if you really want to tell stories if you want to tell jokes if you want to do any of that stuff you have to do it first step on the rakes but like once you've stepped on a rake if, it, if it's breaking your nose, stop stepping on that rake. Well, it, it's, it, it's kind of interesting. You look at, like, um, I just, we just finished the first season of The Magnificent Mrs. Maisel, which is, you know, it's semi-fictionalized. There's real people in there. There's not real people in there. But it, it captures a moment in comedy history where comedy was completely changing its voice. Like, that, that 19... 19- late 50s early 60s in the Hollywood and then New York comedy scene where basically comedy became what it is today to a certain extent or at least began that transformation and you have people like Lenny Bruce who I don't like Lenny Bruce I don't like in a historical context I can listen to his material and I go okay within the context what he's doing is transgressing he's trying to push people's buttons and saying things because he's friends with people of color. He's friends with people in the gay community in the 50s and 60s. Like, these are his the people he grew up around. And he's obviously, like, when he says these things that to our modern ear sound toned up or racist or sexist or homophobic, it's context. And it's, like, you know, historically... 
but if he hadn't pushed those boundaries, then the next voice, like the Carlins and and you know the you know the the next generation of comics wouldn't have been able to move past that. But but it's 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 my problem with Jack on Will and Grace, right? Like I get that it's funny, and I get that I can laugh at it, but I get hard, I have a hard time when a straight person does because even though it was meant for everyone, and the whole point of the show was that it succeeded on a broad level. Um, when I was young and starting off in Toronto, uh, as a waiter, people would ask me to perform Jack. People would, like, I would, I would get, um, kind of sexually harassed yeah. with, with this character, uh, at work. So, or, or, or Lou Reed, um, Take a Walk in the Wild Side. There's yeah. a school that has banned the song, despite the fact that... It was the first story, first person accounts of the life of his friends who are trans individuals in but the 1960s. But the trans individuals at the school were like, I don't want to hear a song about how trans people have to rely on, on survival well, prostitution. I think interesting about that was it wasn't even trans people. It was like, there, it was just people like, I should be offended by this. Because it's like, okay, but you know the historical context of any of this material. But then there's the added stupidity of the situation was like, yeah, we're doing driving jams on the school road trip, so we're going to throw this on there. And I'm like, ah! Like, it's an awesome song. It's a beautiful song in so many ways, but maybe not the right venue. You know? Yeah, and, and so <clears throat> you do have to know your audience. Like, every comedian um, worth their salt knows there are certain gigs that you do or don't take if you do or don't have that material. Uh, you don't go in with your blue material to a corporate gig, right? Like everybody knows that. So if you, if you don't know how to control for context and context change and historic things become like, there's all these people who love Greece, all these middle-aged women who think Greece is the greatest musical ever. And they keep getting like, it's still being done in high schools and junior highs. And it baffles me because it's the most sexist it's, it's musical. A play, it's a play about <laughs> gaslighting date rape and just straight up rape at some point. Uh, it's I mean, terrible! Like, it's like, uh, with you, catchy tunes, though. I love tunes, the songs. Yeah, and, those, and those costumes, you know. But I, I'm always flabbergasted that Greece has this past because it has so much nostalgia attached to it. But, but an interesting counter to that is a play like Rocky Horror, which wears it on its sleeve and it honestly... Rocky Horse is a ten, ten times smarter musical than, than Greece, Greece ever, ever was. Yeah, and, and it's like, it, but it catches flack, and then like, but you're, you last year you did a play about date rape. Yeah. This is just like a person being their true self. Well, it's, it, it, it is literally, if you, if you go and watch the movie and listen to all the lines and pay attention to where it's going, it, it's, it's actually um, an ode to hedonism as a life philosophy that that pretty much proves its point by the end. Like it's it's a very successful. All art has a thesis. Uh, it's a very successful um, film, and one of the reasons that even though the audience at the time didn't quite catch on to what it was, why it lasted for thirty or forty years or however old Rocky Horror is now, is isn't just the amazing performances. Lots of movies with great performances have fallen into the dustbin. Rocky has stayed in the pop culture zeitgeist because it has this amazing thesis that, that is still an important thing for people, especially at a certain age to really question like what amount of their life should be dedicated to pleasure. 
And this is a movie that directly asks that question, like, how much are you letting or not letting pleasure influence yeah. the decisions you're making in life? And then, you know, who, who gets to define what I consider pleasure? Yes. And that's an important question. And there's a reason why high school students, when they discover the movie, go ape over we, it. We dress up in costumes and watch it in our basements on, on city TV at midnight when it's for the first time it's like, exactly. you know, on TV. No, no, no. Mommy and me groups don't go off and watch Rocky together for some strange <laughs> reason. They have a different, they have a different relationship to pleasure. The crazy thing is with Greece, I'd say I'd rather watch. Like, I think Rocky is a much more wholesome message than what's in Greece, and especially when you get into the actual original musical. I mean, they cleaned the fuck out of that movie. They well, they they sanitized those lyrics. Yeah, it, it's the play. It's one of those few cases where the the movie really does make the musical better. Like Chicago go see it live on Broadway if you can. Uh, it, it makes that movie look sad. But yeah. but Grease, if you get a copy of the script, because no, no high school does the full script. No. Like, they have to edit it too. Yeah. And there's all these extra songs in the script that you need to make everyone's rule valid because in a high school musical you have to make sure everyone in it feels like they're there for a reason. But... Oh, it, it's it's actually a little bit worse because in the movie she kind of changes to have friends. Yeah. Where in the play she really only specifically changes to have this one boyfriend, who who may or may not have like failed at rescuing her from drowning. I don't know. Like it's <laughs> it's a Jacob's Ladder scenario. Kind of yeah. <laughs> there, there 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 is a fan theory that. Um, that the entire movie is a fantasy. Like, they actually do die drowning, and the entire movie is their drowning fantasy, like, from that lyric from the beginning. And that's why the car <laughs> flies off into heaven at the end, because this was just all a white light oh, fantasy. Right. And, like, what? Makes for a more interesting movie. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> Grease. It's, it's, it's so awful. It's the worst. Except I love all of the songs. It's catchy as fuck. It's catchy and, as and, fuck. And back before John Revolta was really freaking weird. Oh, no. We just didn't know. We just didn't know. Well, okay. He he was weird, but it, he wasn't a Scientologist at that point. I think that's when he met the person who brought him into Scientology. It was his first wife, if I remember correctly. I, I mean... And, and there's things with him and, and like, his sexual identity that, that have plagued him, or... Like, for his career. Yeah, I mean... But the fact that he played Divine... Yeah, that's what I'm going to say. It's none of my business. He can do and be whatever he wants to do and be. But the fact that you, you, you reprise the role made famous by Divine says something about what you like as a person. And I find it kind of sad that he's repressing that element because he's part of a faith group that considers it wrong. You know, it's, it's like, you know, poor, like, aside from the fact that his son died from completely controllable, treatable epilepsy, which, as an epileptic, that strikes home really hard for me. Oh, you wow. Know, it's like, yeah, he had seizures, one went way wrong, and his, his son died, because it's like, how can you, like, set, like, compromise you so much? But again, I've never been a person of faith, so that's, I guess, kind of the kinds of things that you touch on in... Adam Bailey's on fire. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, a comedy about uh, a religion that tells you you're going to hell your whole life is, is once again, dark stuff. And that yeah. wraps us back around to that that topic. Um, well, I mean, the show is also about the nostalgia that people who have that troubled relationship. And I know a couple other shows that actually kind of touch on similar topics. There's, I'm not the only 
person entertaining dealing with this issue of nostalgia for a faith that you're no longer able to be part of. Yeah. Uh, which is a strange thing. When you talk to the atheists in the urban centers, that's a really complex and confusing thing to explain, especially if it's something that technically was hurting you and people will say to you, to your face, well, that doesn't make any sense. Aren't you just happy to be free of it? Why do you still... Because like, I personally still believe in a god being thing like I, I i don't try and just say god because then people just hear the capital g and they hear the they, the, the that word evokes the sistine chapel painting and, and that's not necessarily what i believe in it, it might be closer to the flying spaghetti monster but it's a hard thing to explain it, it's when like when there's certain topics that people's minds just shut down around religion is kind of one of them and you know when you tell somebody you know, Carl Sagan was not a, an agnostic. He was an agnostic. He was not an atheist because he's like, what greater hubris is there than declaring there is no God? There's no way for us to prove that. I'm a pure scientist. I I cannot say something does not exist if I cannot prove that it does. If I can't prove that it doesn't exist, and so I mean, and so he's like, he operated under the belief that there was something out there. People only closed down around the religious stuff that was the stuff that oppressed them. Like, if I was Jewish and talking about my complex relationship with my faith and how I kind of am on the line with Judaism, we'd be having a much different conversation. It would be an easier thing to talk about. Everyone has a friend who believes in horoscopes, and we are, we're all pleasant enough to, to have them tell us why we do things because we're a Pisces or a Capricorn or a Sagittarius. And no one's like, no, don't talk about your crazy star religion <laughs> you can't say Sagittarius here like no no one's ever no one's ever been like don't mention Pisces around <laughs> Uncle Jed um, no one no one has that reaction to that but something as complex uh, of you know Christianity especially because it's split into so many different factions and there's damage that we're doing by not talking about it because there's streams of Calvinism that are woven through the U.S. political system that if you don't really understand um, how different versions of Protestantism work and, and how different Christians believe in their faith and what dominionism is, uh, you don't understand why Trump is president or what his electorate, what the people voted for him. But how, like, how the Mormons are so easily able to write off things that... you know, I was reading an interesting article about how much of the Mormon support there, like 61% of Mormons support Trump because he's rolling back land protection laws in um, Utah that go back to when the Mormons settled that and they feel the government took away their land. So they feel like he's like almost a messianic figure and that he's returning these things to him. So every other issue they can ignore because of their one, this one self-serving element. And this is, of course, not a condemnation of all Mormons. There are Mormons who clearly sub, like are against Trump. But Mitt that, Romney. <laughs> oh, no, no. He came out and supported Trump recently, now that Trump has endorsed him for Senate again. So he completely oh, backpedals. mother. Yeah. So, so Mitt Romney's father is one of the biggest... Um, anti-racists in U.S. history. Uh, he he actually was the person who called out redlining. Yeah. Uh, and fought Nixon and fought uh, 
to get make redlining illegal. Like Mitt Romney's dad is actually this incredibly powerful person who was like very much against racism and wanted to do real work, not just do lip service, but actually like look at what laws support structural racism in the U.S. and tear them down. And, and it's just heartbreaking that Mitt like, Romney like a is true such a boomer. He sold out his morals oh, to get back into power. Oh, it, it, it's it's really frustrating that that generation exists <laughs> i'm sorry mom and dad but your generation sucks yeah. <laughs> like after the abc's of love with adult baby cupid do you have any plans of what you're like looking to explore next oh god um oh wow that's i'm i'm really focused on the abc's of love with adult baby cupid right now i mean i would like to direct again soon because it's been a while uh I'm, I'm obviously focused... I'm focused a lot on what's going to make the Clown Festival really pop in a market like Toronto. That's that's something that's big for me right now. Um, but just keep writing, keep it funny, keep it true. I, I am writing a play about condoms and the history of condoms, which is weird and, and, and kind of suits me because it jumps all throughout time, space, and history. and And so, of course, it's going to be wacky and not what anyone expects by the time it gets yeah. put on. But but mostly I'm just trying to make sure that what I'm working on now is good, right? Like, I, I'm a very in-the-moment... That's a good way to work. Is there, you know, is there any... Are there any acts, any, any comedy shows, programs, clowns, anything that you'd re- recommend people checking out? Well, Joe Coy is coming to Toronto for um, the Just for Laughs 42 series, and Joe Coy is fantastic and i don't think he's on everybody's radar yet um i saw him in miami a couple years ago and and he's pretty peter pants funny um if this gets aired before the toronto fringe if if this has a toronto market uh i would say definitely see the merkin sisters i i adore the work that they're doing um i know that there's probably someone else that i should recommend because I saw their work recently, and it's just not in my head at the moment. I'm like, yeah, see the Merkin sisters. They're good. And see who else is funny right now. Um, Gay Victorian Affair on YouTube is pretty funny. And, yeah, just just go, go out and see local. Like, I think that's the biggest thing is don't wait for a big name to come to town. There's, there's things happening all the time. And I often just bump into what's local on my own. Because if I want to go out, I'm just going to head out the door and be like, I feel like comedy now. And then I'll walk down to wherever the local comedy club is and I'll just see what's happening. I don't I don't plan a lot of the times. I plan at, at two times of years, I plan really heavily what I'm going to see. And the rest of the year, it's very random. So I think people should just go and see local and do local and support who's creating around them. Because I bet you there's a local weirdo that's doing amazing work nearby whoever's listening to this and the the $10 that you give them to watch their weird hilarious thing will really help them and maybe they'll end up uh, being some kind of underground thing like I am because the underground is fun. It's fun being underground. <laughs> I've been an underground success for a while now and it, it's okay. <laughs> One day I'll stick my head above ground and then people will see me there too. But maybe maybe this is that moment. Right. Uh, Star makers. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks very much for sitting down with us. Thank you. And uh, it's Adam Bailey. Check him out. 
What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.